There is a bit of explicit content in the podcast you are about to hear. It's Tuesday, June 19th, 2018 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And The Gist presents Whoa There Girl, our first Whoa There Girl. And I got to say, it's a lot better when Wanda Sykes is delivering it. Anyway, Whoa There Girl. Kirsten Nielsen. Surely it is the beginning of the unraveling of democracy when the body who makes the laws, instead of changing them, tells the enforcement body not to enforce the law. Whoa there, girl. Do those unenforced laws that lead to the death of democracy include the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, the Logan Act, the Emoluments Clause? Asking for a friend. Okay. Our next woe there, girl, it's Laura Ingram. So since more illegal immigrants are rushing the border, more kids are being separated from their parents and temporarily housed in what are essentially summer camps, or as the San Diego Union Tribune described them today, as looking like basically boarding schools. Whoa there, girl. Summer camp? How come I know that if these particular kids actually did play Capture the Flag, you'd be very upset by that? Whoa there, girl. Boarding school? I'm looking at that graphic over your left shoulder. It's kids on the floor behind chain link fences. Boarding school? Yeah, I know they have AP classes, absent parents. Our next woe there, girl. And if you thought all the woe there, girls, would be a Republican fake news edition, no, no. It's from Meet the Press, New York Times journalist Helene Cooper. It's something that at the times we've been wrestling with on the news side because we get a lot of letters from readers saying, why do you guys say president, the president made misstatements? Getting why a lot of say, tweets right now. Yeah, why yeah. don't you just call a lie a lie? And we've said lied in the past, but what Dean Baquet, who's the executive editor of the Times, has said is that he thinks that we shouldn't use it all the time because if you use it all the time, it loses its meaning. Whoa there, girl. Or maybe it's, whoa there, Dean Baquet. You're telling me the problem is when the paper of record accurately tells its readers that the president of the United States is lying, that meaning is lost, and the meaning that is lost is the meaning contained within the paper of record. President lies, paper says so, paper loses standing. The one who needs to worry about lying in that scenario is not the party lying, it is the party that is accurately calling out the lies. And that is why I say, whoa there, girl. But you know what about that overall point and Dean McKay's point? I don't think she and Dean McKay are wrong. So in this case, it might not be a whoa there, girl, but a whoa there world. Listen, not every episode of Woe There Girl ends on such a universal note, but it is nice when one does. On the show today, I risk opprobrium and possible damnation by objecting to the branding of the angel mom. But first, the uproar over childhood separation is the rare instance of the public mostly agreeing on the wisdom of a policy. But if you dig deeper, you find that even this disastrous course is particularly popular among Republicans, and that shouldn't surprise us. We say we have a two-party system. What we really have is two warring tribes, and policy has little to do with it. A fascinating, and I don't use the word lightly, talk with Liliana Mason, author of Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity. (laughs) 
the thing about elephants and donkeys is they don't really hate each other in nature. They don't actually come into contact that often. Cobra mongoose, um, uh, Jets fan, Pats fan. Can we come up with a better symbol for just the acrimony between the two parties and the two ideologies in America? A new book about this is called Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity. Professor Liliana Mason is here, She is the which is good because she is the author of it. Hello, Professor Mason. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. I watch a lot of politics, study a lot of politics, but you point out that maybe I shouldn't be watching politics so much as a boys in a summer camp. How would that how would that illustrate some of these things going on in politics today? So this is a really old uh, psychological study called the Robbers Cave Experiment, and they they took a whole bunch of fifth grade boys. Outside of Oklahoma City, they were matched to be almost identical, every single one of them. You know, they were all white. They were all Protestant. They all had similar family backgrounds and grades in school. And then they randomly divided them into two different camps and and sort of watched what happened as they discovered that there were other boys down the road and sort of all quickly, very quickly with just this, you know, different group names and identities devolved into rock throwing and the the two teams eventually had to be separated for their safety. Mm-hmm. Did anyone refuse to let uh, others bring their legislation to the floor or invoke cloture votes or anything <laughs> like that? It, it didn't go that far is what you're saying. <laughs> no, no. In fact, the reason that I really like that story is that the entire thing that they were fighting over was a trophy. That was it. There's nothing after the trophy. They don't do anything after they get the trophy. They just go home. But they were willing to severely injure each other just to get that trophy. So you're saying if they had just embraced the much derided participation trophy culture of today, where everyone gets a trophy, there'd be no <laughs> ill will. Unfortunately, no. The desire for winning is, is something that's very deeply embedded in us. So, so it would seem that there were there were two parties. There have uh, always they've actually almost always been two major parties. They haven't always been the same, but you know the Whigs go, and then the uh, Republicans come to replace them. Uh, there are factions within the Democratic parties, but we have there's a lot of political science about why a first past the post political process yields two parties. Why wasn't it always thus? If what we really care about is the winning and losing, and it doesn't have more to do with say the ideological sorting, why is the acrimony ratcheted up? Uh, since the parties got ideologically sorted. What we've seen over the last few decades is this change in the social makeup of the two parties. The parties used to have a whole bunch of cross-cutting identities. Your neighbor might be a Republican and you might be a Democrat, but you both go to the same church. So you can you can kind of bond over some other identity that you share, even though you're both in different parties. What's been happening since the 1960s is that the parties have become much more socially different from each other. So there are fewer and fewer of these identities that we can sort of hold in common and think of the other group as human because we know them in this other context. Generally, what we're seeing is that Republicans are now mainly the party of racially they're white, religiously they're Christian. Democrats are generally the opposite of those two things. Even though there's plenty of white Christians in the Democratic Party, um, they're largely non-white and non-Christian as well. So black, black Satanists is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know if it's pushed back, but just to uh, make, make this more clear, it is true that a very good, although perhaps not the best, predictor of what your politics are going to be is what your parents' politics are going to be. But that's been true for a while. It seems like 
a lot of these trends have been true for a while. Are you saying that in 2018, there are how many fewer blocks where the houses go Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican? But the difference is when the success of your party also means the success of your racial group and your religious group, you get more invested in the outcome. So it's not necessarily that partisanship is changing. It's that we're adding all these other group identities into it, which means we're fighting for bigger portions of, you know, who we think we are and who, right, who we right. feel so, like. So a good analogy that you made is imagine how disappointed you are if your team gets to the Super Bowl and loses. Well, now imagine if the Super Bowl weren't just the Super Bowl of football, but basketball, baseball, every other sport. So it's not just when your political party loses, it drags along with it that your race lost and that your, in many cases, gender lost. Certainly mm-hmm. uh, the people you went to college with or the people that you didn't go to college with and look down at those college snobs lose. There's a lot riding on it. Exactly, exactly. And and there's been a lot of studies showing that, you know, poli- losing politically, losing an election, for instance, is really painful to people. People respond extremely emotionally to losing elections. You know, some political scientists have found, uh, you know, they measured how sad parents uh, were after Sandy Hook. Just not the Sandy Hook parents, but all parents were after Sandy Hook. They, they measured how sad uh, people who lived in Boston were after the Boston Marathon bombings. And they found that Republicans in 2012, after having lost the presidential election, were sadder than parents after Sandy Hook and, and people from Boston after the Boston Marathon bombing. Was that because there's a dance on your grave aspect to politics as opposed to Sandy Hook and the Boston Marathon, you know, Infowars I- idiots notwithstanding? Yeah, kind of. There's there's also a sense of because we're so socially different, there really is a sense of like, I don't know who these people are. You know, like the people who just won this election, they're not my people. I have no sense of whether I can trust them or not. I'm I'm certain actually that I can't trust them. And I'm legitimately afraid for what's going to happen to my country. And 2016 was like the perfect example of this on both sides, where actually both Democrats and Republicans truly believed that the presidential candidate from the other team was just the embodiment of evil. You know, there are a couple of, I think, interesting ways that the parties break down. The more right-wing parties tend to be the more nationalist party. And depending on a country's appetite for nationalism, tracks with uh, right-wing or conservatism rises and falls. That seems kind of natural. And it also doesn't surprise me that there's an ethnic sorting to the party. It's not always perfect. But throughout the world, parties are not only more or less ethnically sorted, sometimes they are just a proxy for ethnicity. You know, if you look at, if you look at, say, India, for instance. But I want to talk about the educated, uneducated thing. It seems to me that the people who speak for the party, the people who go on TV and the people who speak for Democrats, you can tick off the boxes. They are largely educated people. It seems to be more of a mix of uh, men and women, though, you know, but since, since we do live in somewhat of a patriarchy, there are more men. And it seems like there are probably more white people speaking for Democrats on TV than there are white people in the party. It's much more multicultural. However, if you look at who's speaking for Republicans, who's elected, who are the avatars for Republicans, they're still very educated people. How is it that the uneducated have come to organize around a party, but the the leaders of the party and the avatars of that party are still just as educated as, as, as can be? So that's a really interesting question. We used to think that income and education were kind of the same thing. So you could use income and education to predict people's partisanship pretty equally. That's not really the case anymore. 
you can still use income to some degree. People who are higher income tend to be Republican. But education is is now moving in a different direction. So now people who are higher income are Republican, but people who are higher education are Democrats. So these two things that used to be like the same, we thought of them as almost the same and completely linked together, they're pushing people in different directions. And one really interesting thing that I found about just the 2016 election is that class has always been a really solid predictor of partisanship. So people who call themselves working class tend to be Democrats and people who call themselves upper class tend to be Republicans. In 2016, for the first time, that distinction disappeared completely. So class is no longer predictive, which means that there are plenty of working class people who are now calling themselves Republicans and plenty of upper class people who are calling themselves Democrats. You just can't use that as a predictor anymore. It doesn't tell you anything. So, yeah. I, so what I think we're seeing is actually a, we're, we're in the middle of a shift to some, some other arrangement of, of education, class, and income. So about 15 years ago, I think I'm getting this right, Morris Fiorina, who's a professor at Stanford, wrote a book called One Nation After All, and I read that book, and it was influential to me, and he points out on policy issues, issue after issue, we're really not that far apart, you know? Majority, small majorities believe in, pick the contentious issue, abortion, right? And since he wrote that, uh, we've actually come further together on an issue like gay marriage. Now, I think since then, actual polling shows that we're a little bit further apart on issues, but we're so much further apart as just our identities than the, than we are on issues. Why have they not traveled uh, in in tandem? Yeah, so his work really motivated a lot of my research because he kept showing that people were just generally not that polarized in what they wanted the government to do, and yet everyone hates each other. And so that was that that was the motivating question be- behind my whole book and all of my research. And really, the answer is that we are just psychologically motivated to want to win. There are really long histories of social psychology research that demonstrate that people are willing to lose actual income in order to make sure that their group wins, right? So um, the, the famous experiment is called the minimal group paradigm, and just the short version of it is people are just given random group names, and then they're told, okay, everybody can get $5, or the group that you were just told that you're in gets four, but the other group gets three. And people will choose the winning scenario over the kind of greater good, everybody wins type scenario because there, there's actually some value in that sense of victory that they're willing to spend money on. How does anyone ever decide to defect if the whole thing is about hating the other side? So the only way that I can imagine defections happening at this point is sort of on the margins of people who can still see people who are like them in the other party. I would imagine, you know, suburban, white, college-educated women who have historically been Republicans, possibly looking at Democrats and saying, I know those people, right? I've met those people in my life. I live in a neighborhood near them. I went to college with them. They can kind of imagine themselves being at a party with those people, right, with the other Mm -hmm, people, mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, going into rural Appalachia and asking someone, you know, with a high school education to go to a party with a bunch of college-educated intellectuals, they probably wouldn't be as comfortable at that dinner party, right? And so so really the the way that I think about it is, you know, who can you invite to the dinner party (laughs) that will feel comfortable there, you know, enough to identify with this group of people? Okay, so does that argue, let's take it to the Georgia governor's race. You had Stacey Abrams, who won, who's the first major party nominee, who's a black female, and you had Stacey Evans, who didn't. And Stacey Evans' argument was, I'm more like, I'm more identifiable, essentially, to the Republican voter. Would your your advice say that 
you know, all things else being equal, that's a better argument. The way that I think about it is that Republicans who are going to be willing to vote for a Democrat are already kind of on the outskirts of the party anyway. The way that I tend to, you know, I predict Republican voting is how many of these identities that are key to the Republican Party, for instance, do you have? Are you white? Are you evangelical? Are you male? Are you rural? Right. So the more of those identities that you have, the more likely you are to vote for the Republican Party, because those are the identities that make up the party. If you're a college-educated woman, you're already not exactly fitting, you know? And so, mm-hmm. so the types of people that I think that the Democratic Party would be looking for would be people who are already sort of on the edge. And this actually goes to sort of how all this started, because it really all kind of started in the after the Civil Rights Act in 1964. And I think it's an instructive example, because you can actually look at you know, what happened to conservative Southern Democrats after the Civil Rights Act passed. They didn't like it. They hated it, actually. They were really angry that their party had supported this type of legislation. But they didn't all become Republicans. Right? There were Southern white people. They hated Republicans. It took an entire generation for conservative Southern Democrats to become Republicans. And in fact, you know, the people who were Democrats at the time probably maybe moved to being independent and then their kids could call themselves Republicans. You know, party ID is really strong. And so, you know, we're at this moment in time. It can take decades for for these types of things to, to actually change anyone's actual party identification. Do you think the people with the best habits of mind, I don't want to just say the most open-minded because open-minded could mean that you're too open-minded and and you allow bad information to infect you. So I don't want to say smart, I don't want to say open-minded, but the best habits of mind, what we should hope for, the highest, most virtuous people in our civic society. Would they change parties often, vote for both candidates necessarily? Is it still the case that we would see a lot of cross-party voting from those people? The interesting thing, I think, is that we can actually get to a point where everybody agrees on an actual policy, but no one trusts the other side enough to implement it. The example that I like to give on this is after Sandy Hook, you know, it was like 90 percent of Americans agreed that we should have background checks before gun purchases. And that included like 84 percent of Republicans. But only 56 percent of Republicans actually wanted legislation to enforce background checks, a policy that 84 percent of them agreed with, because partially because, you know, it was considered a winning issue for Democrats if it were to pass. And they didn't want to give up that victory, but also partially because they didn't trust Democrats to do it right. And so even in this scenario in which, you know, 90 percent of us can agree on something, which is so rare, even then we don't want compromise. We don't want our government to compromise on it because we're worried that the other side is going to mess it up. Liliana Mason is an assistant professor in the Department of Government and Politics at the University of Maryland College Park. Her book is Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity. Thank you, Professor Mason. Thanks so much for having me. And now the spiel. In the debate, if you want to call it that, over separation of children from parents at the border, there are appeals to logic, appeals to fact, appeals to history, appeals to truth, appeals to fairness, and appeals to conscience. With 10 Republicans in the Senate, prominent Republican re-election officials, and 66% of the public opposing the policy, it seems that the appeals to conscience or appeals to emotion have won. The emotion being sympathy for small crying children. 
But the propagators of this policy also know that appeals to emotion rule the day. Though their most common emotion spouts forth from the spittle-flecked edges of Stephen Miller's mouth. It is an angry and aggressive and militaristic emotion. Either we have laws or we don't. Enforce the laws or we have lawlessness. Stephen Miller told the New York Times it was a simple decision because, as President Trump tweeted today, immigrants bring crime and infestation. And he said of Democrats, quote, they don't care about crime and want illegal immigrants, no matter how bad they may be, to pour into and infest our country. But there was another kind, another type of appeal to emotion, another emotion that was being appealed to when these policies were being thought of, when Trump was using them to electoral advantage during the campaign. And no one called out these appeals to emotion. So I would like to do so right now. There is a concocted category of grieving person that the anti-immigration advocates refer to by a term that can be counted on to elicit sympathy. They're called angel moms for good reason, because they are a voice to protect all of America's children. Angel moms. They are the mothers of children slain by people who are in this country illegally. A top activist among angel moms is Marianne Mendoza. No one heard of or from Marianne Mendoza, she says, until Trump came along and listened to her. And now Fox is making sure everyone hears Marianne Mendoza. She was on last night. Joining us tonight, angel mom Marianne Mendoza, her son, Sergeant Brandon Mendoza, was killed in 2014 in a head-on collision, uh, an illegal immigrant who was drunk driving at the time. I cannot fault a grieving mother for grieving, for hating her son's killer, for coming to the realization that if U.S. immigration laws were vigorously enforced, perfectly enforced, the killer would not have been in the country, and therefore she could tell herself that her son would not be dead. That makes a certain amount of sense. I'm not going to condemn any step in that process, though I would come to different conclusions. What is condemnatory, though predictable, is Fox News treating angel moms as an agreed-upon classification, like gold star families. Gold star families are those who have a son or daughter who died in service of this country. Their children earned their status through their actions, not through the actions or rather the class of their killers. We've had um, actually uh, angel moms stand with him. I am going to ask, these are really special people that I've gotten to know. I'm going to ask all of the angel moms to come join me on the stage right now. These are amazing women. The conceit contained within the designation Angel Mom has actually migrated from Fox and White House spin masters like Kellyanne Conway, who you heard there, to the mainstream media. This is CBS Channel 5 and Phoenix's description of that clip you just heard of Trump when he was inviting the mothers to the stage. Now, at one point during last night's speech here in the Valley, Trump welcomed a group called the Angel Moms to the stage. They are people who... It's natural to give the mothers of children killed tragically a bit of extra credence and standing in public arguments. In Argentina, for instance, the mothers and grandmothers of the disappeared, who were children that were killed by the military dictatorship, they came out to the plaza, they brought pressure on the government, and rightly so. But the mothers of children killed by illegal immigrants are getting attention for the wrong reason. No TV anchor person is going to tell Kellyanne Conway or Sarah Huckabee Sanders that angel moms, that that is an inaccurate and misleading designation 
And the reason they're not going to say that is because it's important for TV news people to seem kind and approachable to viewers. I do not have that restriction. So I will say it here. Angel moms are a propagandistic tool. And while I have sympathy for any parent who's lost a child, I think these angel moms are acting unethically, or at least they're being used for unethical means. Why? Here are my reasons. One, not only are they not like Gold Star family members, they're not like family members of children killed in school shootings or children killed by drunk drivers. Those parents have organized around the deadly acts that killed their children. They're not against people, they're against actions. They want to stop the actions. They aren't targeting the people. They aren't targeting the very status of the people who commit the acts. It's an important designation. It would be as if MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, had a campaign to demonize alcoholics. Of course, any parent who's lost a child would hate the killer. But in the case of MAD or the Marjorie Douglas families, they're trying to call attention to the means of homicide, not being against a broad category of people doing the killing. Second reason why Angel Moms is an inaccurate and incorrect description. Angels aren't real. Third reason, even if you think angels are real, if these are the moms of angels, if these are the angel moms, what does that make all the other moms whose kids have died tragically? Oh, I guess the mothers of a six-year-old and Sandy Hook, they're not the mothers of angels, huh? And four, this is the big one, the underlying condition that these angel moms are against, illegal immigration, has been shown not to be any more dangerous to Americans than every other American. There's some noise in the studies, and there are some studies that advocacy groups point to, but the most reputable studies, and many of them, either show no correlation between immigration, even illegal immigration and crime, or they actually show a negative correlation. A University of Cal Irvine and a University of William and Mary researcher did a meta-analysis of 50 prior studies. I'll quote from it. One finding remains clear. Cities and neighborhoods with greater concentration of immigrants have lower rates of crime and violence, all else being equal. I mean, think about your experience. If you've lived in this country, if you're my age or, you know, any, anything within 10, 15 years of my age, since 1980, immigrant populations in major metro areas have doubled. But since 1980, the violent crime rate has gone down 23% in major metro areas. So really, you have a situation with one group of people who are just as unlikely to kill or maybe less likely to kill than the population as a whole. But kill they do. Of course, there is some killing going on. We have 43 million immigrants in this country. We have an estimated 11 million illegal immigrants. That's like the population of Portugal. Of course, some crimes are going to occur. And I won't even use the passive voice. Of course, some illegal immigrants are going to commit these crimes. So what happens is if a member of this group does one of your family members harm, you can, I suppose, retroactively wish the whole group out of existence or out of your immediate sphere. Yes, you can make a case to yourself that without that person from that group, your loved one would be alive. It's easy to look at the mom whose son died and say, if the bad member of the group who killed your son weren't here in America, your son would be alive. I wouldn't tell her that she was wrong. But what about the good members of the group who weren't here? 
We wouldn't have that restaurant. We wouldn't have that hardworking neighbor. We wouldn't have that father whose daughter grew up to perform an operation that saved your other son's life. We really wouldn't have America. The logic of wishing illegal immigrants out of existence because uh, a select few will do harm to non-illegal immigrants is pretty much like the logic of saying never release anyone from prison or never let anyone who's committed a traffic violation get their license back. Never give anyone a second chance for anything. What focusing on the angel moms does is play out a warped way to have the entire immigration debate, but with exclusive attention being paid to the most extreme downside of a policy that has both positives and negatives. And the negatives, when there are 43 million immigrants in the country, and like I said, 11 million illegal immigrants, some of them are going to kill other people. That is the negative. You're going to allow that to dictate all of your immigration policy. I believe people should be given chances within rules, more open, more compassionate, more sensible rules than are being propagated by the Trump administration. And I think that we should not give extra credence to the so-called angel moms. Or better yet, we should redefine the term to mean every mother who does what's best for her child. And maybe then we would see the illogic in evoking the invented category of angel mom to justify literally separating mothers from their children. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname is just producer. He's floating a segment idea called Don't Go There, Girlfriend. It's a little too spicy, I think, don't you? Mary Wilson, just senior producer, strongly advised me against Que te pasa, muchacha? Steve Lichtai, Slate's executive producer of podcasts, thinks we missed maybe by eight months the proper cultural moment for Oh No, You Didn't. The gist. Listen, if Samantha Bay had just said, Whoa, girl. Instead of that feckless thing, then the Republicans would only have Robert De Niro to complain about. And thanks to our Slate Plus listeners who help support the show. If you're not a member, learn more about the many, many benefits of membership at slate.com slash gist plus. Oomperu depperu and thanks for listening. <laughs>